Ready. This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. And my aim, as always, is education. All of the information I have is from public sources. Hello, class. How's everybody today? Let's see if we have any business to take care of before we get into the rest of this case. Once again, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I got a whole bunch of downloads recently, and I'm almost at 19,000. So thank you again, everybody around the world. I think it was last week I hinted at something big coming up. So I'm going to let it out of the bag a little bit. I'm going to be working on a project with somebody, and I'm not going to name this person, but it's a true crime YouTuber. So we're going to have a collabo, as you say. So look for that coming up. I'll make sure to give everybody the links, how you can see it, something that you can see. And I'm real excited about that. So today we're going to be going over the timeline of what happens in the Halderson case from the time Chaz kills his parents until he's arrested. We're going to have some trial audio, some interrogation, etc. And all of this stuff is pretty exact. And that would be thanks to text messages, surveillance cameras, and other kinds of records. And it's pretty handy when you're reconstructing events to know the exact dates and times. Now, when we left off, in case you forgot, Bart had just got off the phone with somebody from Chandler's College and found out that Chandler not only hadn't been attending college in like two years, but that he wasn't graduating like he said he was going to in that June. So Bart's pretty mad. And I would imagine that he had it out with Chandler and he told him tomorrow, which would have been July 1st, we have a meeting scheduled with somebody at the college. And we have no idea of knowing what his thoughts were or what exactly happened because Chandler has never admitted to anything, but we can only imagine what's going through his little pea brain. He's probably shitting himself, thinking this whole cover that he's been building over the past couple of years, all these lies have now been blown and it's all about to come crashing down. So he's probably thinking, what am I going to do? How am I going to get myself out of this pickle? So July 1st, and we know this exact time because they showed the text messages in court. And these are text messages between Chandler and his girlfriend, Kat. The first one is at 7.11 a.m. He sends Kat a message and it says, how did you sleep? I hardly slept. And she said, why? And he said, I don't know. Stuff hasn't really been going well lately. So I'm trying to plan for the next thing to fuck me over. And Kat says, it's going to be okay. This poor girl has absolutely no idea what's going on. She's trying to be a good girlfriend and comfort her boyfriend. So she says, you're going to go to Florida. 
I love you, and I'm here to keep your booty in check. And Chandler says, will you leave me even if it doesn't work? And I think this is significant, so just maybe keep that in your mind. What he's referring to is if he doesn't get this SpaceX job, will she still be with him? And she says, like Florida would be so dope and like nice, but I'm not dating you for money. I love you tons. At 1.03 p.m., he texted her again and he says, I overheard that they might go to the cabin with their friends, but I don't know. And he's referring, of course, to his parents. Now, note, this is the first time that the parents going to the cabin is ever mentioned by anybody. Now, remember, this meeting is supposed to happen at 3. So at about 2.10, Bart texts Chandler and says, I'm ready when you are. And these are the last words that he ever texted. And investigators put together from what they know, and they think that this is the sequence of events that happened when Bart came home. Chandler was waiting with his gift, his SKS rifle. And when Bart came in the house, Chandler shot him twice in the back. The medical examiner would later say at the trial that Bart likely would have died instantly. So then Chandler texts his mom, who's also going to be on her way home from work, and he says, Dad's phone is dead. Will you stop and get me some pop? Or I think he said soda. I know everywhere calls it something different. And what he was doing, he was trying to delay her a little bit so that probably he could hide his dad's body. So Krista says, this is a text, K, I will, smiley face. This is how nice she is. My mom would be like, oh my God, you're a pain in the ass. And Krista's like, I will, smiley face, just to show you how nice of a mother that she was. So at 510, Krista comes home, and we know this exact time because there are a lot of surveillance cameras in the neighborhood, and one of the neighbor's cameras caught her car pulling into the driveway at 510. And again, we don't have any proof, but investigators believe that she was shot and killed as soon as she came home also. But her cause of death was never determined for sure for reasons that will become obvious. So at 511, Chandler makes a list on his phone. And this is really going to remind you of Joel Guy Jr., this, is, this will be things he has to do, to-do list. Get hydrogen peroxide, door handles, move shit upstairs, get a job, and clean floor. Clean floor is kind of obvious, seeing that there's probably blood on it. Hydrogen peroxide is something that you, you use to clean blood. Get a job is something that he should have thought of years ago. And door handles and move shit upstairs have absolutely no idea. So at 6.30, he texts Kat and says, baby, I need you. She would later say in court that she doesn't remember what exactly he was referring to. We can only guess that maybe he was kind of shaken up because he just killed his parents. But again, that's, that's just speculation. Kat must have asked him where they were or what they were doing because he said that they were doing a grocery pickup. So it's 7.49. This is a little bit disturbing. Chaz is in the shower, 
and he was FaceTiming Kat on his phone. First of all, who takes their phone into the shower and why? That's just weird. Like, you can't go, what does a shower take, five minutes without communicating with somebody? Anyway, she says, let me see your face. And there's him in the shower. It's just his head. And the reason he's taking a shower is because he's dirty. Because killing and dismembering people is hard work. And yeah, that's what he's been doing, in case you haven't figured that out. So at 8.16 p.m., we know this time, because it's caught on a store camera. It's in my social media if you want to see it. Keep in mind, he supposedly has a concussion, can't walk, isn't supposed to do anything, has headaches, has this and that, and blah, blah, blah. He's making himself out to be a real invalid. So we see him at a convenience store. And in the picture, you can clearly see him in each hand carrying a 20-pound bag of ice. I can't even lift one 20-pound bag of ice. And if you're curious as to know what's he doing with all this ice, well, just think freezers and body parts. I don't think I have to spell it out. So later on, the police would interview all the neighbors like they usually do. One of the neighbors said he smelled something burning from the Halderson residence. He said that it smelled like a pig roast. Never smelled a pig roast, never seen one, don't want to, but apparently they have a particular odor, and this dude said that that was what it smelled like. Now, this part's pretty interesting. At the trial, they had a witness, an expert witness, who was a forensic video specialist. And I told you that they lived on a pond, which I thought was really cool. And in the back of the house, across the pond, was a guy who had 16 security cameras. Yeah, 16. I don't know. The place was like Fort Knox. I don't know what he had in there. Fortunately, one of these cameras pointed at the Halderson residence. So this analyst looked at the footage from it and saw that there was one particular window in the Holderson house that was lit up for the entire night. And they would later determine that it was the room with the fireplace in it. And this theory would be backed up later, but scientific evidence determined that Chandler was burning, if not the entire bodies, at least parts of his parents' bodies in this fireplace. So now we're going to go on to Friday. 702. Yeah, he's an early riser. He goes into a store and buys a tarp. Again, he's caught on camera. He would later claim that this particular morning, his parents were picked up at about 5 a.m. by some couple. He doesn't know who. He just knows it was some couple because, remember, both of their cars are there. So in order for this story to work, they would have had to been picked up by somebody. And this is probably better said by the DA during his opening statement. His statement was like an hour, but I heavily edited it. I took out some parts, and I thought I'd play them just to illustrate better for you what was going on at this time, what Chandler was telling the police, because he does such a good job of explaining everything. So here is the DA during his opening statement. They were going to come back Monday or Tuesday, and I don't know where they are. Who were they with? The deputies ask. I don't know. I helped them pack. 
Thursday night. They must have left Friday early before I woke up at 6. Who'd they go with? I don't know. Where are their cars? Well, they're still at the house. What'd you help them pack? Bottles of liquor. Lots of money. Tools. Silver bars. Why were they going up there? Some people get, they were fixing a window. Some people got, it was a plumbing issue. Storm damage. The story varied. Sometimes they took just money. Sometimes they took just liquor. But over that day and the next, I'm talking to numerous sheriff's deputies, detectives, including those detectives, he gives this bizarre story of his parents leaving in an unknown car, going to a cabin with an unknown couple, with an unknown amount of money, for really an unknown reason, which is they ask him, have you heard from him? And he says, yeah, I got a text from my mom. And he did. He showed him his phone, made it safely. This is from Krista Halderson to Chaz. That's what his family calls him. Made it safely. Can't get anything through, though. Yes, it's packed. Going to White Lake today for the parade. We'll be home Monday night, Tuesday early. I love you lots. Now, can we discuss this for a minute? My stepdad has a, a camp. It's, uh, I'm sure nobody cares, but it's like a couple trailers put together. It's, it's not really like a camp camp, whatever. He, it's like a hunting camp. But the point is that he goes there quite often. He can't drive. And I'll be talking to my mom and she'll say, oh, Wayne's going to camp. And I'll say, oh, who's he going with? And, uh, you know, who all's going? What are they going to do? Because maybe they have some projects planned. And sometimes they used to go away or they do go away, of course, always without me. And they might want me to get their mail or whatever. And I always ask, where are you going? Where are you staying? Who all's going? Winian's leaving, Winian's coming back. Always. I always know all these details. And I have their cell phone numbers, of course. They'll usually call, even if it's Mexico, my mom will usually call to check ins. And the most bizarre thing is when he says they took a bunch of cash, a bunch of booze, and some people he told they took silver bars. What the fuck? What is this, the Wild West? Who carries silver bars around? And they asked some of the friends and people who knew them if going to casinos or gambling was something that they would do. And everybody said, no way. And the word cheapskate was often used to describe Bart. And I have to say that this is just doesn't really mean anything. I've been to a lot of casinos in Vegas and Atlantic City just to see what they were like and get souvenirs and stuff. And I don't think you have to be a gambler to enjoy casinos, but that's not really important. So it sounds like he's setting up this picture of the money, all of its booze. And it's like, what was he trying to imply? Not only was he a liar, he was a bad liar. His stories were so ridiculous, as I think we're starting to see. So the same day, he texts Kat and asks her to bring some cleaning stuff, like hydrogen peroxide and a Swiffer mop. She doesn't really think anything of it. Why would you? It's like, oh, he must have made a mess somewhere and wants to clean it up. So now we're going to meet another character named Dan, and he will become important in the story. He was a co-worker of Krista's. He worked in the automotive shop with her. So here is Dan at the trial testifying about what he saw at the Holderson residence on July 2nd. Sometime 
Did you find out on July 2nd of 2021 that Krista no called and no showed into work? Yes, that's correct. How did you find that out? Uh, I had the day off from work. We were supposed to close on a house and I received a text from a couple coworkers asking if I'd heard from her. Had you heard from her? I had not. Did she ever discuss with you um, in the last week of June, that first day in July, any plans to go to her cabin? No. What did you do in response to learning that Krista no called, no showed? Initially, we were just taking, uh, my girlfriend and I were taking care of some stuff around the house. I received a second text, I think around 2.30 or so, um, of another uh, uh, co-worker asking if I had heard from her. So around 4.35, or so, we drove over to their house to see if I could get a hold of anyone. Uh, initially knocked on the door, uh, no response, so I peered through the front door window, like the side light. Didn't really, I saw what appeared to be a table on its side. Um, no response. Then we went to the garage door, checked to see if the vehicles were there, which they were. And then at that point, uh, Chandler came to the door. Um, and did you go into the house, talk outside or something? Talked outside of the side garage door. Tell me about your conversation with Chandler. What did he say? When we arrived, it appeared he had just gotten out of the shower. Um, I confirmed with him that his parents were not there. Um, and then he had given us a story about how they had gone up north in emergency to the cabin and went with a couple that he was not sure who they were. Just know that they were picked up early that day and would be gone for a couple of days. Did he tell you what time his parents had left? I know he had said that it was, um, he had not been waking up yet. So it was something early he heard them leaving. And other than Chandler just getting out of the shower, was there anything else unusual about his appearance? Uh, he had a bandage on his large toe. Did he say anything about his foot? Uh, he said that he had broken the glass around the fireplace while playing with the dogs. Did he describe his injury at all? Just said there was blood everywhere. After you spoke with Chandler, were you satisfied enough to that you left the house? Yes, I gave him, or we exchanged phone numbers. Um, so we could text and keep in contact. And I said to let him, or for him to let me know if he had heard anything from them. And then at that point, we felt the story made sense, so we left. I had gotten a call from him that Sunday, which was the 4th. Uh, I was at a event down in South Beloit. Let's see, so just following up, trying to figure out when they're expected to be back. So I believe we spoke that Saturday, trying to see if there was any update. I believe what was told is that they, um, you can't get a hold of them up north when there is cloud cover, so they're not able to receive or send texts if the weather is not clear. It looks like it would have been Monday. Okay. And what was the nature of that interaction? Uh, he was just saying that his family was going to be another day late and to ask if I could request another day off for her. Okay. And did you, in fact, communicate with your work? Yeah, I told my boss, Curtis. Yes, I was following up with him because she was supposed to have a doctor's appointment that day that she was really looking forward to and was expecting them to be back for sure for that event. Uh, so it looks like I texted 9.23 that morning to have Krista call us as soon as they get back into town. And of course, I didn't get a call from Krista. Correct. Uh, so then I texted again Wednesday asking if they were back in town. Uh, said that Krista was going to lose her job if she doesn't call in since it was a no-call, no-show. And what, if any, response did he give you? Uh, I said he's going to file a missing persons report if she misses her appointment. At this point, how worried are you on the spectrum for Krista? 
I was getting pretty worried. I had texted her before when she was at her cabin, so I knew that story seemed about fishy. And it was also really rare for her to not be excited about an event like that and to be telling everyone. <laughs> so we expected, you know, if they were planning to be off, that she would have let us know and she would have let my boss Curtis know well in advance. And it certainly wouldn't be like her to miss a doctor's appointment that she had been looking forward to. Dan, what was Chandler's demeanor or affect like when you discussed his missing parents? At the time, he didn't seem very concerned. Just they were up north and everything seemed like it was fine to him, was my understanding. So in response to that last question about his demeanor, are you talking about or remembering talking to him in the driveway of the home? The only thing that seemed off at that time uh, was when he said there was a lot of blood or there was blood everywhere. It was kind of, I felt kind of like he was looking through me, um, kind of like a glassy look. But other than that, everything seemed normal as far as how I knew Chandler. Everything seemed like, you know, they were just up north until she started to miss more days of work. And then it seemed like there was more concern. Okay, notice a couple things in that conversation. It's July 2nd, and Dan goes to the door. Chandler comes to the door with his foot bandaged. And he made a statement to the effect that he cut his foot and there's blood everywhere. He would later tell the police that he was throwing around a ball for the two dogs and the ball hit the glass on the fireplace and broke it. And he stepped in it, hence cutting his foot. In reality, later on, police figured out that when he had his parents' body parts burning in the fireplace, the fire got so hot that the glass exploded, showering the area of the living room or whatever room that was with glass. And he stepped in it, cutting his foot. Then this is a little bizarre. She spent the night there, Friday night, and they slept in what Chandler called a couch fort. And this would be two chairs pushed together. And they were like, not normal size chairs, but they were longer so that the space in between you could sleep on. Not comfortably, but he wanted to sleep in this fort, he called it. And he claimed it was because he was such an invalid, was having trouble getting around, that this would be closer to the bathroom than if they slept in his bedroom. So Kat agrees she doesn't like the couch fort because it's uncomfortable. And the next morning, which was July 3rd, Saturday, this was pretty interesting. We've already heard that Kat and Chandler are like in constant contact, mainly through text, Snapchat, etc. Well, there were a few hours where Kat couldn't find Chandler. And he wouldn't answer the phone, wouldn't answer the text, etc. And she's getting kind of worried Her main concern was that she thinks he has all these issues. He says he's dizzy, he can't walk, etc. And she's thinking like, oh my God, what if he fainted somewhere? What if he's lying on the ground somewhere or he fell or had a stroke or, you know, who knows what? So at the trial, the DA shows a slide presentation with their texts. And again, it's better to hear in their words what the situation was, what his texts showed that morning. And remember that Snapchat has a location feature, like a, I guess, kind of a GPS. Like it shows 
where somebody is. So here's that little clip. At some point that day, after you left, did you look at a Snapchat map to look at where it was? Yes. And did you become worried or concerned in some way? Yes. What is that? A screenshot of Chandler by the Wisconsin River. And how's he labeled? What's his name there? Hubby. And what time is that? 8.58. Okay. I think previously I said the second, I meant the, the third. We're, we're now into Saturday. But was this taken on Saturday morning? Yes. Why did you take this screenshot of Chandler's location? I didn't know why he was there, and so I was curious. Did you know where this location was? Yes. And how did you know where this location was? I've been there before with Chandler. Tell us about it. It's a little spot where we can park our, park our car and walk down to the Wisconsin River for swimming. Yeah, what did you do when you saw that location? Um, did you, you took a screenshot. Did you do anything else with that information? I asked him what he was doing there. And what did he respond? He was going to pick up CBD and he was passing through there. He was passing through? Did you try to call him? Yes. Did, were you able to talk to him? Yes. Do you recall anything else from that conversation about what he said or why he was, where he was? He was picking up CBD for the pain. He didn't want to tell me that he was picking up CBD because he was scared I was going to be disappointed in him. Were you having trouble communicating with Chandler that morning between 8 and 9, essentially? Yes. This still gives me the willies. Just the idea that you have this thing with somebody that they always know where you are. It's like, uh, later that day, cameras would find him in the town of Roxbury near something called the DNR, which is a designated nature reserve. And in case you're wondering what he was doing in this area, well, he was disposing of body parts, as they'll find out later. So July 4th is a Sunday, and Chandler and Kat celebrated by going to the farm. I did mention this previously. This is the home of Kat's mother, Dulce, and her girlfriend, Cress. There's a pool. There's probably picnic food and 4th of July entertainment. So Chandler says to Cress, who's the, the homeowner, you know, swimming in this pool really helps my legs, which are numb and weak. And would it be okay if I came back and swam sometime? And she said, sure, of course you can. Now, remember that. That's going to be important. Also on this day, Chaz got the text. I put air quotes around that text from his mother that we heard earlier. The DA read it that says, hi, we're at the lake. It's busy, blah, blah, blah. Well, her phone really did send that text to Chandler's phone, but her phone wasn't at the lake because she wasn't at the lake, as we know now. Her phone was wrapped in foil in a shoe under a shelf in her house. We're not talking about a criminal mastermind here. He could have just turned it off, destroyed it, took the battery out. I, I don't know. But Kat stayed overnight again that night. And I think she said, okay, no more of this couch fort shit. I want to sleep in a real bed. And she did. In case you're wondering why he wanted her in this couch fort, speculation is that he didn't want her wandering around the house and happening upon something that he didn't want her to see. Say, for example, um, I don't know, body parts. 
Now, around this time, Jane calls Chandler. Remember Jane from the very beginning? This was Krista's best friend of a long time. And she hadn't heard from Krista in a few days, which was very unusual. And she said to Chandler, have you heard from your parents? And he gave her the story of they went to the cabin. They took a bunch of money and booze and maybe they're at a casino. And he said, oh, by the way, my mom did text me. So Jane and her husband go to the cabin just to take a look around, see if they can see anything. And they can tell nobody's been there in a long time. The grass was really high. It just looked unkempt, like unlived in. And they had a couple sheriff's deputies with them. So she tells Chandler, you need to file a missing persons report. And during this conversation with Jane, he asked her a very bizarre question. He said, when Yins were at the cabin, did you notice anything strange like blood or shotgun shells? And she's like, no, but a red flag went off like, what is he talking about shotgun shells and blood? So it's July 5th, which is Monday, cats at work. And I mentioned that the day before, Chandler had had such a good time swimming in the pool at Cress's farm. Well, he, he said it helped his numb and weak legs. So he tried to call her to ask if he could come back. Couldn't get a hold of her. So he thought, well, I'm just going to go anyway. And what happens when he goes swimming there is significant. So I'm going to let you hear the DA say it in court. This is, again, from the DA's opening statement. So the police, what do they do next? They go talk to the person who owns the farm. And they say, was Chandler out here? And she goes, yeah, he was out here on the 4th of July. But you know what? He showed up the next day by himself. I told him he could come back. Come back anytime, as we just say to people, not expecting they're going to roll into your house the next day. She says he was acting bizarre. Said that he had a doctor's appointment and they'd given him some bad news that he was going to lose his job at SpaceX because he couldn't travel. He couldn't attend orientation. He asked to use the pool. And of course, I said, yes, this woman will testify and she'll tell you that she sat in her house for a while, perhaps a bit weirded out that someone had just shown up at her rural farm, but she let him have his space. But about an hour later, she goes down to the pool to check on him. He's not there. No one had opened the pool. No one had been in the pool, but she sees his car. It's parked out in a field away from the pool, backed in toward where that grass is a bit longer and had its hatch up. And she thought, boy, that was strange. But she thought maybe he's just on a walk. So she goes in the pool. She starts swimming. She says, then I see Chandler. He's walking out the woods in that area. But the police walked about 20 yards into the woods. And in that pile of debris, under dozens of sticks, bushes, and dirt, they found Bart Halderson. Now, when I say they found Bart Halderson, I need to explain that. They found a human torso. Someone had crudely chopped off the head, the arms, and sawed off the legs in the middle of the thigh, leaving the underwear on in the beginnings of the pants. They removed the sticks and brush over a course of a few hours. They brought out doctors from the medical examiner's office to make sure everything was done appropriately. They rolled the torso over. There were gunshots in the back. This man had been shot in the back and chopped up. Another detective said, that spot where Chandler was walking out of the woods, there's an oil barrel there, like an old fuel tank with a hole in it. That's right where the car was parked. So she peeks her head in, and that's what she sees. Broken saw blades, hand saws, Scissors, tree loppers, all of them tested by the state crime lab, all of them covered 
human flesh and blood, a fart, and Krista Halverson. In October, the homeowner was tearing apart a barn, trying to clean it. And there in a barn about 100 yards from where Bart Halverson was found, the murder weapon, behind a bunch of boards on the side of the barn. Now, a couple notes. He tells Kat that he can't talk, he's at the doctor's, and there's apparently no Wi-Fi. Well, Kat works in the medical field. She's a pharmacy tech. So she calls bullshit on this because she knows that all doctors and hospitals, etc., have Wi-Fi. So she's like, let me see your face because she's sus- suspicious at this point. And he said, well, I, I can't because I'm getting a CT scan. And you heard the DA allude to the fact that Chandler got some bad news from the doctor. First of all, I don't know who's had a CT scan, but rarely do they give you the results right away. He claimed, and I'm trying to say this without laughing, it's fucking ridiculous, that from the CT scan, supposedly, remember, supposedly he had a head injury, that the doctors told him that he would have lifelong numbness in his legs and may need a colostomy bag. Anybody who knows anything about medicine knows that this is absolutely ridiculous. And something else to note, Chandler's at the farm in the woods doing what we now know was disposing of his dad's torso, and the two women are are swimming in the pool. It's an above-ground pool, by the way. So he comes up to the pool, and he says hello to them, and he said, can I come in? And Cress was swimming topless, so she was like, um, no, you can't because I'm topless. Well, it's like he didn't even hear her. He just jumped in. And they both testified at court that he had this weird, I think they used the word zombie-like, look on his face, like just acting kind of bizarre. And they said he was in the pool for like a minute. He acted like he was kind of rinsing himself. And I think one of them like pantomimed the motion of somebody in a tub, like rinsing yourself off. And then he left. And he also told somebody, I think it was either Cat or Cat's mom and Cress, that the reason he had been let go from SpaceX was because they had been letting him train from home over the internet and his poor injured brain couldn't keep up with the work. So they're like, sorry, buddy, but we can't let you work for us because you're not mentally up to the job, which was probably true to begin with. So by now, people are seriously starting to wonder, where the hell are Bart and Krista? Kat told Chandler to text Mitch and ask him if he knew anything. Jane had a couple daughters. They were twins, and they'd known the Halderson boys for like their whole lives. She sent them over with some food for Chandler because apparently he couldn't cook for himself in his weakened state. And one of the girls later said that she got really, I'm paraphrasing now, she got really weird vibes from Chandler. Like she thought he was just off or not right somehow. So on the morning of July 7th, Chandler goes into the Dane County Sheriff's Office and officially reports his parents missing. Later that day, 
the police went to the Holderson residence and searched, and they noticed that the glass in the fireplace had been replaced. And we're going to hear a little bit later when he's interrogated Chandler's story about what happened to cause that. The next day, July 8th, was when the proverbial shit hit the fan. The police found out that Chandler had been at Cress's farm, and that's what you heard in the DA's opening statement about they saw the vultures and went to investigate and found Bart's torso. So while they were doing this, Chandler is doing a couple things. He knows that a lot of his neighbors have security cameras or doorbell cameras. So he decides what he's going to do is go, go around to the neighbors, see if anybody has anything interesting on their cameras. And the reason he's doing this is not because he's concerned about his parents, of course, but he wants to see if any evidence is caught. And in this case, the evidence would be the absence of Bart and Krista leaving on the morning that he is telling everybody that they left in a mysterious car by a mysterious couple. So here's a little clip of him. This is a doorbell cam trying to find out what this neighbor might know. Hi, my name is Chandler Halderson. I live just down the road. Oh, yeah. You're the one who calls the police. Yeah. I was looking at the fancy security system. I was wondering if you were able to capture the road or my house. Um, the, uh, the police actually came and, and downloaded everything they have. But it, it's actually my sister's house. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they were here, I think, till like 9 o'clock last night and downloaded all the video she's got. So we're hoping that... Yeah, did it capture anything on... We don't know. We don't know. They just took a copy of everything and... So we're hoping... Yeah, and it's all HD. Yeah, and it's all HD. And then I think there's one... Um, Especially in the dark. It looks like it has a little bit of night vision. Yeah, and there's one on the uh, the corner of the garage, too. Now, this is a doorbell camera, so you can't see too well, but I can just imagine the expression on his face when he learned that the police had already been there and taken the footage from the camera. He was probably like, oh shit. So later that day, he talks to a local reporter about the fact that his parents are missing, which is at this time, all over the news so that people can look for them. And here is that interview. That all I would really want to ask you is just if there's any information that you feel like, you know, would be worthwhile for us to share, anything that you feel like is, is important for us to share, just anything, anything like that, of that mm -hmm. nature. Um, so my last uh, message I got from them, they were going to White Lake for the 4th of July. There's some festivities that go around there. You know, better drink prices at bars, stuff like that for, um, yeah, White Lake, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Along the way, they could have stopped many places. I, I wouldn't know all of them. Mm -hmm. But it's about three hours north of Madison or Dane County. And they left then uh, a week ago today on the first? Friday. Uh, Friday. Friday morning. So that would have been the 2nd, right, of July when they left. 
and that's the last you'd heard of them. And then was it yesterday that you called the sheriff's office or someone with your family called the sheriff's office just to... Uh, I, I go back on that. North. I actually um, got a text from them on Sunday telling me they were going to White Lake. Okay. I don't know when the text was sent because of reception issues that they would have, and they usually turn their phone off because of pay for roaming. Yeah. Um, we, they, it could have been whenever they sent that message that they made it safely, and they're going to White Lake for the fourth. Okay. So, yeah. So it was probably the last couple of days that you started to get this yeah. then. Is there a people, you know, we see comments, people say, you know, are they up north? Is the self-service bad? You know, could they, yeah. you know, just not be able to get a hold of? Is there anything that you feel like is kind of going on here that leads you to be a little bit more nervous that that's not the case? Um, my aunt went up there and was able to call me okay. at the, at, while she was at the cabin. Okay. So she was able to call me. I don't know what provider she's using, mm -hmm. but U.S. Cellular would take up most of Wisconsin, so like they'd be able to call today. Mm -hmm. Because this weekend it was packed. I, I get that packed. Maybe the weather wasn't great for messaging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so mm -hmm. you no. Know. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you about was <clears throat> the a lot of the comments people were concerned or kind of wanted some clarification about the vehicle, right? Because the reports from the sheriff's office say they, they didn't have a car or there wasn't a car with them. Was, they brought, or they were picked up by their friends, okay. who I never got the name of. And I, I assumed it was someone I was aware of, like the close neighbors of theirs up the street or um, their best friends down on the east side. So that's what I assumed. I never really asked any further in it, into it. And so they got picked up and they all went up there. By like another couple picked up here. Yeah, here at my house. Okay. Before I woke up, they they had everything packed up and ready to go. And you you don't know who they're who. And that's uh, I mean that that has happened before where they just kind of head out before I leave or I wake up. You know, I'm heavy sleeper. Mm -hmm. I I'm on a schedule. I wake up at six to feed the dogs, and they're out before six. Mm -hmm. Beat the the rush to get to the north. Mm. Notice the mention of the invisible friends again, and we know that Chandler had invisible jobs, and he had invisible friends. Remember the emails? So maybe this is a thing. Maybe his parents have invisible friends, too. And this is not the first time he's used the word packed to describe what he, I guess, assumes would be the lake where they're supposedly at. I don't know why the fact that this area will be packed for the holiday would have any bearing on his parents being missing. But in whatever scenario he seems to be trying to put forth, the fact that it was crowded there appears to be for some reason relevant. So later that evening, the police asked Chandler and Kat to come down to the police station. They talked to them in separate rooms and Chandler's interrogated for about an hour. I have the whole thing on videotape. I'll play in some of it, and at the end of the questioning, he is formally arrested and put in handcuffs. So here's the beginning of the interview. Hi, Chandler. How are you doing? Not good. Good, good. What you guys switch spots? Yeah. That's All right. Um, so we're just going to talk to you a little bit more, okay? Sure. Um, Alright, just so you know, I'm going to record stuff, okay? It just helps me remember everything and picks up everything that we talk about. 
So Brian Trump, Detective Dane County Sheriff's Office, we spoke yesterday. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. So obviously we're we're here. We want to talk a little bit about your parents going missing, right, Krista and Bart. Before we get started, just because you're up here, okay. So I'm just going to read you your constitutional rights. So today is July 8th. Uh, it's about 5:11 now. We started talking at 5:08. So yesterday, uh, July 7th, I came to your house um, where you live with your parents, Bart and Krista Helderson. And the reason I was there is because you had gone to the Windsor Police Department and reported them missing, right? Yes. Okay. I would think of the department. I went to the like office break room mm-hmm. area in the same building. Yeah, I think it's mixed in with the city. Uh, okay, but nonetheless, a deputy yeah. came and, yes. and spoke to you. Okay, so you, you reported your parents missing. We got some information from you yesterday. We've been following leads last night, working today to you know go through different things, um, just trying to locate them, right? So I, I guess if you want to start with, let's just go back to, to last Wednesday. <laughs> I was with my dad. We, what time Wednesday? I remember it. It was kind of a bad day. Okay. Why was it a bad day? Well, my mom had work, so she was gone. Um, my dad and I were watching something over lunch. It was um, the Wheel of Fortune, and we have we normally have the couch like with our back facing at the table we sat at at the end of you coming. Downstairs or downstairs? Okay. In the bedroom with the TV. I tossed the ball and I smashed the glass. Okay. With the dog, the dog itself. Uh, that yeah. Set my dad off. We tried to clean him up. Mm-hmm. I don't know about him, but I got injured. But he was mad. He didn't really talk to me too much that day. Uh, my mom got home at five, I believe. So you guys are were downstairs, um, just to, to touch back on that quick. So the couch. So yesterday when we were down in your basement, the couches were in a bed. I he helped me put him in a bed before okay. and Thursday, but they put it into a bed. So I could sleep in the bathroom, and the dogs sleep in that floor. They'll be a lot better if they're sleeping on that floor. Downstairs floor? Yeah. Just cooler for them or something? Probably. Probably. Okay. All right, so you were tossing a ball. What type of ball was it? This gross, hairy tennis ball that Rizzo loves. Just like a green tennis ball, like a normal? Yeah. Okay. No, with a squeaker. All right, so you're just tossing that around, um, broke the fireplace glass. You said you were injured. What type of injury? I got a pretty deep hole in my foot. Uh, last night, Mary looked at it, and she said the reason it keeps bleeding is because there's glass in it. Oh, so, that's the... You showed us your toe. Yeah, I showed the okay. detective. Leaf yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, here's where he gives his explanation of what happened to the fireplace glass. He says he was throwing a gross little green tennis ball for Rizzo, that's the younger dog, and he threw it at the fireplace glass and broke it. And his dad was mad about this. And this will be his explanation for why the glass was broken. The glass really did break, and he really did cut his toe cleaning it up. But as we found out later, the glass exploded because he tried to burn his parents' remains in it. Here's another short part here. Uh, his phone died, my dad. He, 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 he just kind of like charged it, put it on the dock, and left it. Then we just kind of hung out, and my mom gets home, 
and I uh, start the I start uh, shrimp scampi for my dad because that's what he wanted. But we didn't have shrimp, so I, I made shrimp with scampi. And uh, that's that's where they told me while we were eating it, they they were gonna go with their friends, and I was like, oh cool. Well, and I yeah. said they were going cabin. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. We were going up north. Up north. That's that's right. Who said that? Mom or dad? Mom. And this is of significance, of course, because he said that while they were eating shrimpless scampi, whatever that is, maybe it's a Chaz specialty, that his mother announced that they were going up north that weekend. And in reality, while this is going on is when he murdered both of his parents. Now, this next part I'm play for you is the last couple minutes. And the detective's pretty much like, okay, that's enough. Cut the bullshit. Tell me what really happened. And Chandler's still playing dumb. He's still like, I told you what happened. And then the, the police are like, no, we know you killed your parents. We know what you were doing. And at the end, you can kind of hear some rattling noises. That's when they say stand up and they handcuff them. I think it's time we start talking about what happened to your parents. Like the truthful version. Okay. Okay. So we have like 20 pages of writing. We're going to start with a clean white piece of paper for you to start telling the truth. Okay. Why? Because listen, listen to me. This is the only chance you're going to have to tell us the truth. Okay. Okay. What we, listen, listen. I'm, I can't tell you what we know, but we know you're not telling us the truth. We know your parents are no longer with us, okay? And we know the reason why, okay? You need to tell the truth. There's, listen, listen. You need to tell the truth about what happened and just tell us why it happened, okay? If something happened, if you were defending yourself or if you just got fed up with stuff, you need to tell us the truth, okay? This is your chance to tell us why, okay? I'm not BSing yet. Okay, so can we do that? Okay, what happened? Okay, can you know what happened? We're not going to tell you what happened. You know what happened. You were there when it happened. We're not BSing you, okay? What happened? You know more than you think we know. I understand. There's people that have told us things, we have evidence, we have proof that more is happening about that. So your parents never made it to the cabin, I think you know that. Instead of you don't stand up and just bring it over here for me. And get it in your pockets at all. Wallet. Just wallet that just bring it. So while they're walking him to the jail, Chandler says that they quote, didn't know the whole story and while he was being booked, they ask you a bunch of questions like about your health and stuff like that. I don't know what question this was in response to, but he made the very strange statement that he, quote, didn't feel bad about what I did. Now, at this point, they've only found Bart's remains or his torso. So remember I told you when they were questioning Chandler, they also were talking to Kat in the other room, and she was giving them all kinds of information. And she showed them the screenshots she had on her phone. Remember when he was, remember that day when she couldn't find him and she found on her Snapchat map that he was at a swimming spot by the Wisconsin River and she couldn't figure out what he was doing there. 
So on July 14th, the police went to that spot with some cadaver dogs and came upon the remains of Krista, which was only parts of her legs, which had been severed and scattered around in the grass. So on July 15th, Chandler was formally charged with the murder of his father, with bail set at a million dollars. And after the remains near the river were positively identified as Christa's, like there was ever any doubt, on August 25th, he was formally charged with her murder also. And he had his arraignment on September 1st, at which he pled not guilty to all charges. So after they arrested Chandler, police searched his house and his electronics. On his phone, he had searched for the date of this would have been before any body parts were found. The search terms he used were body found Wisconsin, woman's body Wisconsin, woman's dismembered body found, dead body found in Wisconsin, and also in the house they found in the area of the fireplace, small blood drops, which were found to be from both Bart and Krista, and a small fragment of human skull in the ashes of the fireplace. They also found shoes belonging to Chandler with blood spatters in, again, both Bart and Krista's DNA. And when the police sprayed luminol on the floor of the basement, the floor lit up like the proverbial Christmas tree. And they theorized that the basement floor was where Chandler had done the actual dismembering. In case you were wondering about the tarp he was seen buying, he used that to transport the remains. And that was later found on Cress's property with his fingerprint on it. So Chandler just recently went to trial in January of 2022. And I have some sound clips to play from the trial. The first is one of the DAs, and this is a few minutes from her closing statement. This PSI was kind of not your average PSI. I've often said in serious sentencings that reading PSIs um, is one of the most depressing things about my job and that I really dislike it, um, although what it does provide is a context to crime. Almost every homicide I've prosecuted, there's been a fairly tragic backstory of the defendant. Violence, drugs, um, just tragedy. And you often are left with an explanation. Not an excuse, but an explanation as to why a crime occurred. There's not an explanation here. Chandler grew up with a life of privilege by pretty much, I think, any sort of angle you look at it. He had two parents that were married and that seemed to be happily married two parents that from all evidence were completely supportive. His dad was the den leader for Boy Scouts. His parents attended every swim meet that he had. There's absolutely no evidence of abuse whatsoever in this case. Chandler grew up with no housing insecurities. He never had to wonder where his next meal was coming from. And he was never exposed to any violence that we saw any evidence of, or even really guns. He went to good and safe schools. By all accounts, he had a supportive extended family that saw him often and a large network of family friends that considered themselves his family. 
He had numerous people that would drop everything to help him if it was needed. He never faced any sort of discrimination that I can find from any source. He was a white male who had a childhood of privilege. Only potential criticism that anyone that we talked to, and we've talked to well over a hundred people, was that perhaps his mother babied him a little too much or was a little too doting. It is out of this life of privilege, this childhood, that was nearly ideal that he committed these crimes. It's also worth, worth noting that these crimes were committed against these two individuals that provided this ideal childhood for him, the two people that took care of him. I only want to say one other thing about the character of the defendant. We certainly spent a lot of time in trial, and I don't need to belabor any points about that. But I do think it's worth noting that in all of the jail calls and messages that the detectives and Mr. Brown and I um, listened to, there was never even a moment where Chandler mourned his parents' death. I found that really unique. I've prosecuted a lot of cases where somebody has killed a family member, sometimes even a family member who was highly abusive to them. And they still, there's mourning there. There's some sort of notion that they miss this person. It was interesting, um, in one message, somebody had told him that they just got back from his parents' memorial service, and they were sad. He suggested that they watch a slasher movie, Halloween. There was no discussion of who was at the memorial service, what they talked about, who they saw, any remembering of his parents. I just think it's notable to bring up that how significant losing your parents is to a person's life and how much it impacts them. It impacts someone and there's been no comment, no tears. And I just think that that is worth noting. Notice how she mentions pre-sentence investigations. That's what I used to do for five years. I would interview the defendant and write a report for the judge on the circumstances of the crime, the defendant's life, any thoughts they may might have, and so on and so forth. What she's saying is that she's used to reading pre-sentences which explain why the defendant did such and such. They had a life of abuse, of neglect, of violence, etc. But with Chandler, all he had was a life of privilege. He was kind of a spoiled brat. In other words, he had absolutely no reasons to do what he did. She goes on a little bit, and it does come out at some point that Chandler didn't participate in the pre-sentence, which means when the person who did it went to the jail to talk to him, he said, no, I don't want to talk to you. Now, do you have any idea? No, you don't, but I'm going to tell you. Like I said, I, I did pre-sentences for five years. Do you know how many defendants said, no, I don't want to talk to you? One. That's right. One out of hundreds. Even the dumbest ones usually knew that talking to me was going to get them points or that not talking to me was going to look bad. And Chandler's pretty much already proven that he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, so to speak. But even I was shocked about that. Now, here's the judge, Judge Highland, who was so nice and polite. Everybody commented about how gentlemanly and kind and courteous he was, but he pretty much sums it up. Again, very similar to what the DA said, but I'll let you hear this little clip from the judge. Almost always in a sentencing hearing uh, for a homicide or even lesser crimes, 
we have some understanding as players in the criminal justice system of the underlying causes of someone's problems, the root causes. Uh, frequently, it's substance abuse. Frequently, it's mental illness. Uh, frequently, it's uh, inability to control anger and, and other behavioral problems that have manifested themselves throughout someone's life. You, you probably are wondering, and I'll tell you, it's been thoroughly investigated of whether there were any red flags that anyone missed. Was Mr. Halderson um, engaged in bad behavior as a youth? Was he harming animals? Was he harming people? None of that is true that we can tell. He seemed to be a pretty normal kid with pretty normal life. We did a pretty abnormal thing as he turned 23. Out of all that, there are three words that I want you to keep in mind that we're going to discuss later. No red flags. So now we're going to hear from Chandler himself. And he, he makes a short statement. And here's Chandler. Your Honor, I want to take this opportunity to state my intent to appeal my convictions. If there are any lawyers listening and willing to take on my appeal, take a moment to please reach out to me. It's not that I do not have feelings. It's that I was warned to not show them due to the scrutiny of this case. Thank you. Okay, what the actual fuck was that? He just stood in court and said, I'm going to appeal. If any attorneys out there are interested, get in contact with me. I have never, ever heard anybody do that. That is the most ridiculous thing. Well, no. Then he makes it even more ridiculous. Then he says, it's not that I don't have feelings or emotion, but I was warned not to show emotion. Like, what? Warned by who? If anything, if his attorneys were half decent, they would have told him that it's better to act that you're upset or pretend to cry or something rather than sit there looking like a total emotionless statue, which is pretty much what he did. So the judge basically had two options. He could sentence Chandler to life in prison with the possibility of parole or without the possibility of parole. And to the surprise of nobody, he received life without the possibility of parole. And he was advised that he had 20 days in which to appeal. Chaz wasted no time with this. He filed an appeal five days later. And if anybody's curious, it only took the jury about two hours to reach a verdict of guilty on all counts. So let's talk about psychology. My disclaimer, as everybody should know, I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist. I don't have any training in this area. I can't diagnose anybody. All I can do is speculate. This is a hard one. This is a very difficult one as far as speculating on what could have caused Chandler to do the things he did. And if we let's start with the um, FBI's seven categories of killers. We have anger, criminal enterprise, financial gain, ideology, power, thrill, psychosis, and sexual desire. He doesn't even really fit any of these. The only one he even remotely fits would be anger. And that would be anger at having been found out, having had his lies found out by his family. And of all the cases I've done so far, 
I think this one had the most bizarre motivation. Remember during the DA's closing argument, I said, remember those three words, no red flags. That seems to be the key in trying to figure out what happened. And it's so disturbing in that looking over his life, there are no red flags. There was no abuse, neglect, drug use, unhappy home. Like somebody said, the very worst thing you could say is that he was perhaps babied by his mother. Now, unfortunately, I have, and probably if you think about it, you can too think of some pathological liars that you've known. And I hate people like this. I hate people who lie, deceive, or fake or phony in any way, dishonest. I just hate them. And they're just so despicable. And any pathological liars I've known have had, I guess, well, not not certainly a good one, not to me anyway, but you can kind of see why they're lying or why they're trying to pretend that something is happening or something is true that's not. And I'm thinking of one person in particular, a friend of mine that I had when I was a teenager. He literally couldn't believe anything that came out of her mouth. And I know why she did it. She wanted attention and she was insecure about herself. So she would tell stories to make herself appear different or better or what she thought that people would think was more attractive. And with Chandler, it seems like he built a web of lies. I don't even know if web is the word because web is like a simple, relatively simple thing constructed by a spider. And his is more like a giant network of, you ever see those trees that are covered by some kind of worms or something? They're all like, it looks like they have cotton enclosing them. That's what Chandler made. His weren't simple webs of lies. They were like humongous constructs. And what he would do was he would start out with one, and then to cover up that, he would have to build on, and to cover up this one, and he he would ha- just have to keep building and building until he had a house of cards, so to speak, that was so complex and delicate that just by the nature of it, that it was only a matter of time before it was going to fall in on itself, which, of course, is what happened. So I guess you could say that that was the actual motive for the murder. murders, is that he knew that this network of lies that he had so carefully constructed over the past couple years was about to be found out. But the bigger issue and the more mysterious question is why did he start these lies in the first place? He made up the SpaceX job because it certainly sounded impressive. He made up scuba diving job because that sounded impressive. He made up the fall and the subsequent head injuries and, and other assorted symptoms in order to cover for why he couldn't go through with a SpaceX job and a number of any other things. But the basic lie, the first one that came, was that he was going to school when he really wasn't. And this was the oldest of the lies. And this is the, obviously because it's the oldest and the first, is the most important in understanding all of this. And without knowing 
more about him and his history, I really cannot explain this. I have no idea what would make somebody say that they're going to school when they're really not, because at some point it comes out that he actually fell out of his classes. And it could have been that he was just too embarrassed to admit that, so he kept pretending that he was still going to school instead of facing up and saying, hey, I um, <clears throat> I uh, flunked out of school. But the, the thinking that even if he did flunk out of school, does that alone make him terrible? Does that make him a loser? Of course not. He could have done any number of other things with his life. I flunked college algebra three times, and I'm not ashamed to tell anybody. I just did. And I told my mom, like, uh, you know, I flunked college algebra again. And it's it doesn't it's not even really embarrassing to me. It's just I can't do math. I I just can't. And I turned out okay, career wise anyway. Fortunately, I never had to use algebra at my job or geometry or any other thing like that. But it is very significant to point out the events of that June. Remember Mitchell was in the hospital for something real. He had very high sugar, and he got fussed over a lot by his parents. Then, lo and behold, the very next weekend, Chandler takes a tumble down the stairs and ends up with a serious head injury. Now, what are the chances of that? I would think that they are extremely low. Now, I'm not diagnosing him, of course. I'm just going to mention a disorder, and you can make whatever assumptions you want. But it used to be called Munchausen syndrome, and it's basically where somebody fakes illness for attention. Now it's called factitious disorder, and it's basically when somebody deceives others by appearing sick or injured or purposely getting sick or injuring themselves. This person mimics or exaggerates symptoms. They can go to great lengths to do this. And the signs and symptoms of this disorder are an extensive knowledge of medical terminology and diseases. Eh, we, we don't really know if Chandler had that or not. Vague and inconsistent symptoms. And I mentioned earlier about the symptoms that come with a head injury. They're all subjective. They can all be made up. Headaches, dizziness, nausea, weakness in legs. And he said he had all of these and you can't prove or disprove them. Another one is, symptom of this is conditions that get worse for no reason. And that was definitely the case. He went from falling down and having a bump on the head to I'll never walk again and I may need a colostomy bag. Conditions that don't respond to therapy. And remember what the doctor said that saw him in the ER. He said most concussions will just kind of heal themselves over time if you rest, avoid bright lights, and so forth. Another one is seeking treatment from different doctors or hospitals or using a fake name when you do this. We don't really know that he did that. A reluctance to allow doctors to talk to family, frequent hospital stays, 
eagerness for treatment or testing, arguing with doctors and medical medical personnel. And these people actually harm themselves, such as, for example, throwing yourself down steps. The cause of this disorder is unknown, but the risk factors are somebody who has a poor sense of identity or self-esteem, some personality disorder, or an experience in the past during which time they were sick or injured and got a lot of attention. The only thing really that jumps out there is we know that Chandler was babied a lot. And is it possible that when he was sick or hurt, he was really babied and he liked this? Sure, it's possible. But I have another theory, and this is just totally off the wall. I'm just going to throw this out here. It doesn't mean anything, of course, because it's just my own theory. I can't get past the fact of the big difference between Mitchell and Chandler. They're two brothers. They're pretty close in age, a year and a half, but they're so different. One is Mitchell is successful, has a good job. I hate to be a person who equates relationships with success, but he's engaged, appears to be in a happy relationship. I think most people would describe Mitch as successful. Chandler, on the other hand, was a loser. I keep thinking about the fact that there could have been some amount of sibling rivalry present, as in Mitchell was the older, more successful brother. Chandler was not. Did Chandler feel threatened by Mitchell and his success? We know that this family, the Hollersons, valued family pretty much above everything else. We heard that Krista kept the kids' belongings and toys to save for her grandchildren in neatly lined up containers in the basement. I saw a picture of those. They are extremely, they're all lined up and labeled, just like Jane said they were. We heard them mention several times about they couldn't wait to have grandchildren. Was Chandler feeling pressured to produce grandchildren? Was he jealous of Mitchell because he had a good job and he was going to get married? Um, I think that this is a very good possibility, and I'm, I'm just speculating. Could it be a contributing factor to, the, to all of this? It's as good a guess as any, because like the DA said and the judge, we really have nothing to go on. And the other, the last thing I want to mention is... One of the criteria for having Munchausen's or factitious disorder, as it's now called, is a personality disorder. And if I had to pick personality disorder for Chandler, and again, I can't diagnose, I'm just playing a game called pick a personality disorder. Schizoid comes to mind because the main symptoms of that one are detachment from social relationships, restricted range of emotions. The person appears detached or aloof. They prefer solitary activities, and they tend to lack warmth. They're said to have a flat affect, and I watched a lot of footage of Chandler, both during the trial and during his interrogation, and his voice and his face, to me, I could be biased, but just to me seemed kind of flat or devoid of emotion. And 
It's just an observation I made. Oh, and another thing. Remember when the DA said that they were monitoring his calls from jail and he never asked or expressed concern about his parents and he was talking to somebody who had been at their funeral or memorial and um, he said, oh, why don't you watch Halloween? Uh, wow. I, I mean, I there's like a seems to be a very big emotional disconnect in him. Like he, he doesn't express things right or he doesn't feel things like normal people, whatever that means. But of course, I've never met him and I have no idea whether he's a schizoid or not. It's just something that crossed my mind. That's all. So let me know what your thoughts are. Why do you think he killed his parents? And oh, how incredibly stupid could he be? I mean, we all we already know he's an idiot, all the things he did. But seriously, how long did he think that he was going to go without people wondering where his parents are or happening upon legs and a torso somewhere? I mean, duh. This is probably one of the dumbest criminals. And that's really saying quite a lot. But I want to know what your thoughts are. I'm going to be on a spring break. No, I'm not going anywhere. I wish. I can't afford to go anywhere. But next week, I will be off on a little spring break. And then I'll be back as usual the following week. So these episodes are dedicated to Bart and Krista Halderson. Class dismissed.